you grab your Bibles with me, turn to the very backs of your Bibles, you will find 3 John, just before Jude and Revelation. And if your Bible is like mine, the pages are coming out. Praise the Lord. We are digging deep into God's Word with this 51st sermon of this series and concluding verses as we study today. Um, John is writing to his beloved brother in Christ, Gaius, and he closes his letter this way. 3 John 13 through 15. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. John's conclusion to this letter to Gaius is similar to his conclusion to his second letter to the church he wrote to. His words there, 2 John 12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you to talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. John is a good and loving shepherd. In his closing affections, we see his heart for his blood-bought family. When he says he would rather not write, but hopes to see them soon to talk face to face, this is his way of saying, I love you guys, I miss you, I long to be near you. And just as he mentioned in his second letter, just as I mentioned to you, I'm so glad they didn't get the opportunity to talk face to face, because that way we have a letter to read, right? He's missing them, and we understand that, and why... It's a bummer that he has to write. But I'm saying praise God that he wrote this letter. We're blessed by it. So many generations later, um, God is surely at work in this for us. And, And I would just say what a great reminder that is in and of itself. When life's not going the way you had hoped it would go. Just as John, he hoped to be with these people in person. And yet the Lord's at work perfectly at work in all things for his holy will and for our good. And we would trust that even when it doesn't add up to us. As we look closer at John's affections, he says that he longs to be with his beloved face to face. If you remember, we looked pretty deeply at the translation of this. The Greek literally says mouth to mouth. It's, it's not trying to be literal. It's, it's trying to express a phrase uh, like we might say, hey, let's get together eyeball to eyeball, or the way we say it is the way we read it, face to face. Let's get off the email, let's get off the phone, let's get together face to face. And just as it did at the close of the second letter, it, this affection, this longing gets to remind us of the longing that we have for one another in the body of Christ. The, clo- the closest we share Not because we're alike, but because we are one in Christ. Christian, are are your feelings and affections for one another, are they based on exterior qualities or are they based on spiritual realities? It's our oneness in Christ that makes us blood-bought family now and forever. 
that causes us to have a real, genuine, deep love for each other, a care for each other. And so let us put away our old hat, our old worldly evaluations of each other, where we looked at each other's performance or what we did or didn't do, and then that evaluated how much I care for you, how close we are. But instead, let our affections, our love, our longing for one another be centered in who Christ is and what he's done to make us one. As I considered these affections that John has now shared twice in the end of both of these letters and here with Gaius, I I couldn't help this week but contemplate how much in Holy Scripture the brothers talk about their longing to be face-to-face with Christ himself. Paul speaks of this as far as our reality now and the longing for that face-to-face interaction with him that is to come. Well, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 13, verse 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul also says something in his second letter to the Corinthians that we say to each other a lot. It's an important phrase of reorientation, a reminder, and that is that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. And this time, it's our faith that is to carry us. We don't get to see. Faith is trusting what we can't see. But how sweet it will be one day when we get to walk by sight. Amen? To see him face to face. This is Peter's point in 1 Peter 1, 8-9. Though we have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the new heavens and earth, we shall be with Christ and we shall see him. Praise God. Oh, we long to be with him in glory. John Stott said it this way, it is enough for us to know that on the last day and throughout eternity we shall, be, we shall be both with Christ and like Christ for the fuller revelation of what we are going to be, we are content to wait. Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What a glorious day it will be, church, but not just for a day. Amen? Forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We have a longing to be face to face, not only with each other, but with our Lord. Look with me at John's emphasis in verse 15 of our text. He says, Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. We'll come back to John's 
commending of peace for the believers, um, for Gaius, as he's writing to him in a moment. But look with me at this emphasis regarding the friends. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. It's a little unique. Sounds almost like a, a, a mobster thing, right? The friends. But we have to see that this is a, an actually sweet reference of Christians. It's a title that we're given that we need to maybe have in better view. Um, there are many titles given to the believers in the New Testament. Uh, brothers, sisters, uh, shepherds, sheep, the congregation, and, and on and on. One of the titles that holds a lot of meaning is Friends. I think sometimes we maybe push it to the back burner because we really cherish the, our family references for each other in Christ, brother, sister. But I would hope that with me you will grab hold of this term that we see used in Scripture, specifically that we see used by our Lord Jesus himself. Consider with me his words in John's Gospel, chapter 15, 14 through 15. Jesus says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Let me be clear quickly out the gate, make sure we're reading this rightly to not have any kind of promotion or understanding of a false gospel. He's not saying that we become his friend by obeying his commands. That would be a works-based gospel and not good news at all. No, Jesus is saying the evidence of those who are truly his friends are those who obey his commands. They've been born again. They're sanctified. The Holy Spirit's at work to bring about obedience, something we didn't do prior to salvation. What a marvelous and joyous reality it is to be called a friend of Jesus. I mean, you think about people you look up to in society and in the world and like, oh, what would it be like to be his friend? Hang out with that celebrity or that sports figure or that historical figure to, 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 for them to call me and want to hang out. And how much greater that reality is that the Lord of all we call you friend. It's a major and meaningful thing to be called friend of Jesus. Why? Especially when we understand our standing before salvation. We were actively his enemy. Romans 5.10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Praise God, because of Christ's gracious and loving reconciliation on our behalf, we're no longer his enemies, we are his friends. Think about that for a moment. I mean, the term friends thrown around a lot, but if you're honed in on it, you're not friends with just anyone, right? No, there's a special bond that you share with your friends. So when Jesus calls us friend, it's because we are truly his, both now and forever. We know him personally, and we're no longer separated from him because of our sin. 
It's been atoned for. It's been paid for. As a result of our reconciliation, we obey his commands because we're his friends. And yet he's still our master and we are still his servant. See, our friendship with him does not change our role. Our role is still right, right? I can be very close friends with Jennifer, my wife, but I'm still husband. She's still wife. I can be close friends with my son, Noah, but I'm still father. He's still son. No, it's important that we understand and keep straight our roles. Why? Because we, if we're honest, have a bad habit in our flesh of devaluing those that we are closest to. So we'll proclaim our deepest love for a spouse or a, a dear friend or a parent or a sibling or a, or a son or daughter. And then for some reason, those that we're closest to, those who we would shout from the rooftops, I'm so in love with these people, they're, they're my closest relationships, are then the ones that we are maybe most likely to be rude to or to ignore or to mistreat. What we must not do is diminish the essential role God has given us to play that he has had for us to be servant. Jesus is our master. and We are his joyful slaves, Scripture teaches. But this doesn't mean that we're not friends, so we have to see them together. We have to understand our role and understand our relationship. See, in what he's saying here, he's not saying you're no longer servant, you no longer play that role. He's saying you know you no longer know me only as like a wooden obligatory. No, no, we know each other now. We're reconciled. We're friends. Those who truly love him, Jesus emphasized time and time again, those who truly believe in him, those who are his true disciples, his sheep, they listen to his voice and they obey his commands. For he is their Lord and their Savior. So, our obedience is not the obligatory wooden service of a hired hand. It is the joyful and faithful service of a dear friend. See with me that we can be close friends and still fulfill our role in a very sweet way to our Lord. Church, we must have a right view of what it means to serve Jesus as our master while we embrace and celebrate our closeness as true and intimate friends. The apostles really got this, and constantly their chosen title to refer to themselves was not like, hey, I'm friends with Jesus. You know, like kind of like we like to name drop in our flesh. Oh, I know this guy. You know, and bragging. No, no, their chosen title to use, most of them, the opening of their letters is to say, I'm, I'm Jesus' slave. I'm his servant, and it's my total joy in my life to be so. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, is how Philippians is opened. They want to highlight their privilege to serve their Lord. John the Baptist understood this well. In John 1, 27, he, 
speaking of Jesus, is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist understood greatly the joy of his life. His greatest accomplishment was to be a servant, to, to make all of his days about Jesus. So we are friends who love to serve and obey our master. We're not just obligatory slaves. We need to not see it that way. Praise God that Christ calls us friends. That we get to be as close as we are. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. May we not take advantage of Jesus' love and friendship, but serve him well. May that inspire then how we love and care for and live out our roles with those that we dearly love and are closest to as well, our other relationships. That it would affect our friendship with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and that as we evaluate those relationships in the body of Christ, that we'd be careful not to evaluate them selfishly, because sometimes we can do this, we can, we can look around a room and go, man, I wish so these people would love me like a friend. And yet I would just encourage you to say, how are you loving the people around you like a friend? But let that start with you. you set the tone, inspire, pave a way for those who might be timid or need some help in working that out themselves. Church, we have a truly special bond that is rooted in the blood of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. May we do this well in our close relationships in Christ. To not ignore, to not treat poorly, dismiss our role, but to love well, care for those well that we are close friends with. To do this with respect and honor. To fulfill our role as husband or wife, son or daughter, mom or dad, brother or sister in Christ with one another. Christian, I just ask you, do you see your brothers and sisters in Christ in this way? Breaking down your fleshly temptation to have superficial terms of judgment for each other, but instead having deep affection for those that God has chosen to be your forever family. So hear it again, John's words in verse 15. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. There's a camaraderie here that is sweet. And I pray we'd know it. I pray we would foster it. John loves these people, each one of them. And while surely they are different than him and they do things different than he does, and so it's not about that kind of fit. They're loved and cherished, true friends. Friends, I love you. I pray that together we see and savor John's example for us to respect and care for one another, each one by name, as we go forth. Let our friendship mature and abound for the sake of the Lord. Amen? In the first part of verse 15, he says, Peace be with you. Peace be to you. 
uniquely is how he phrases it. And to dive into this this morning, we have to really stop and recognize there's so many ideas of what peace is. Right? If I... If I were to even say to you right now, draw on your paper peace, you might draw a popular symbol or some other sign of peace. But what is it really? And I mean, the culture has a, a claim for peace. They, they wish for peace for each other. They, um, you know, want world peace and in all these ways that it kind of plays out as we kind of feel like it's, we see John doing here, but what peace is and the peace, what the peace is that we have in Christ, we have to see is different than what the world's chasing or hoping for. How do I know that? How do I know it's different? Because Jesus said so. Gospel of John chapter 14, verse 27. says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. We're going to appreciate what John is saying here to Gaius. We have to understand the extent of the peace that Jesus brings to those who trust in him for salvation and be reminded of the difference between that and what the world's chasing. See, the world's idea of peace is essentially whittled down the absence of conflict. No conflict, no, then we have peace. And we think of it as kind of an emotional calmness. Things are right in good order, and so I have peace. This is peaceful. And we can get caught up in kind of hoping for this circumstantial peace and really looking to it to really kind of define us. And in that, we move away from what the Lord really provides and we slide back into something the old man really only had to vie for in our flesh. Thinking like, when he or she apologizes, then we'll have peace. When the kids finally get along, we'll have peace. When my debt's finally paid off, peace. And the politicians I don't like are finally out of office. Peace. And on and on. But we have to understand that all this is outside in. It's circumstances working out kind of peace. The problem is it's momentary and fleeting because when those circumstances change again, then you don't have peace anymore. Right? Yeah, maybe the political landscape changes for a season, but then it shifts back again. Or, you know, I'd like to meet you if your kids finally figured out how to get along and they never fought again, right? I mean, no, it's not lasting. It's the, these are realities of our fallen world that it just doesn't last. It's fleeting. Jesus says the peace he gives, though, to his people is different than that temporary fleeting peace that we can get caught up chasing. He says he's leaving you and I at peace. He's and when he does that, he's not saying, I'm, I'm bringing you into something that means no more hard circumstances, no more chaos, no more war. No, the peace he gives us is it's holistic. It's something you can experience truly and fully despite wartime realities, despite fallen world circumstances. 
to give you a, a quick look at the kind of peace we experience when we trust our lives to Jesus, there's a couple of different applications of it that are major that we need to understand rightly. First and most importantly, for those who trust their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith in Jesus, we're no longer his enemies because of our sin. That sin's been atoned for. We are justified. We are brought into a reconciled relationship. There is peace now in the most important relationship in your life between you and God. We also in Christ have inner peace, what the Jews would call shalom. This isn't some kind of hippie meditation thing. It's, it's something belonging to Jesus, something given to his people. Paul speaks of it well in Philippians 4, 7. The, this peace of God transcends all understanding. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a verse I pray a lot with many of you in great hardship and tragedy that you would experience in the midst of this great hardship, this unforeseen turn in the road, you would experience peace beyond understanding. Peace that is not connected to your circumstances. It's, it's inner. It's, it's a grounding you have in the Lord. It's the way your faith is at work, trusting Him despite the storm ripping the walls of your house apart. There's a lot of ways a fallen world have tried to chase that and mimic that. You can't have that without Jesus. Colossians 3.15 shows us that we also have in Christ peace between our blood-bought brethren, brothers and sisters, that we once we're at war with based on the streets we grew up on, the schools we went to, the teams we played on, the companies we worked for, now united in Christ. Colossians 3.15, let peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. That the peace we have in Jesus is not something we grow or we earn. No, he provides it. We are to protect it. Steward it, keep it. Listen to the way Paul speaks about it in Ephesians 4.3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is why it's very essential that we are making every effort when there's breakdown between you and someone else in the body to reconcile that. Not waiting, not justifying, not letting things stew, but that peace between us is on display, it's at work. It's a testimony that others are seeing and gleaning from. In Christ, we're able to do this. We also, fourth, have eternal peace. Revelation 21, one through four, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That peace, that eternal forever peace is in that reconciled relationship with God because of Christ. You don't have that outside of him. Yeah, you will have eternity, but without rest. People will arrogantly just proclaim on, on others that they loved who died rejecting Jesus as Savior and will say on their post or in their cards, like, God rest your soul. No, that, that soul will not know rest. It will not know peace for eternity because they're not reconciled with Jesus. But in Christ, we have peace. We have it now. We have it internally. We have it with God. We have it with each other and we'll have it forever. This is way better than any kind of like good run of circumstances you have for a short time in this life. If you hear one thing from me today, hear this. You will never know true and lasting peace without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is a crossroad you cannot avoid. Only his death for your sin, only his power at work in you can bring true and lasting peace with God, with self, with each other, and for eternity. In Christ alone is peace ours. We sang earlier, he's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. The prophecy of old about the Messiah is Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then to you I would say, come you unfaithful. Turn from your sin and trust, believe in Jesus. Trust your life to him. And only then will you know peace like you've never known it. Now and forever. So when we, talk, when we light a peace candle for Advent, when we talk about Jesus' arrival means peace, See how game-changing this is. Globally game-changing. This is not a little feel-good kind of religious moment. This is, this is a major turn. Life-changing reality. Trust no longer in yourself or anything else in this world. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. On that first Christmas, the angels sang, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. But they didn't stop there. Like all the Miss America pageant people had always hoped for, I want peace on earth. It didn't work that way. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
Well, that means peace is for those people. So how do I become someone that he's well pleased with? God is only pleased with those who no longer represent themselves. You, you stay Lord of your own life. You stay representative of your own self. Your, your sin doesn't meet his holy standard. You must die to self and give your life to Jesus, that he is now your Lord and Savior. He represents you before the Father. And only in Christ's perfect record, finished work on the cross to atone for all of your sin, past, present, future, are you, in his view, atoned for, reconciled, justified, and he is pleased with you. We are powerless for peace by ourselves. You can't leave today and say, you know, I'm going to work a little bit harder to do peace better in my life. Powerless for peace by ourselves because of our flesh. We're at war with our flesh, our sin. It's why we need a Savior. It's why I need sanctification to save me from my pursuit of God's creation over himself. I've watched this time and time again. You take a good thing, a relationship, a job, something you're good at, and you, and you start chasing it, and it just encircles you, and it becomes everything. All your hope, all your joy is fixed on this part of God's creation. And then it lets you down, and you're just broken. We have to see our sin. We have to see our idolatry to overcling to relationships, stuff, status, success, and make it more important than God in our lives. What you have to understand is when these things are the thing that you are really living for, you will be a stressed out individual. Your life will be chock full of anxiety. Why? Because you have to keep them in order. You have to keep them from breaking down. David said it so well in Psalm 38, 18. I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. Mankind in our flesh does not have the power to not stress or worry. It's, we can't do it. Because we're sinful. Because in that sin, we value God's creation more than him. And then when that stuff breaks down or it doesn't work to plan, then we stress. But the good news of Jesus' arrival is that there's salvation, there's, and therefore then sanctification. To, the Spirit goes to war with the flesh, and I begin to trust in and rest in, by faith, Jesus. So let me just ask you, are, are you truly at peace in Christ despite what you're facing in the here and now? Are you faithful in the midst of this war-torn world when sin rages at righteousness, when your blood family's mocking your faith, even breaking down those relationships, 
when injustice is happening around you? Just in general, are you troubled lately? Maybe afraid? Feeling broken or undone? Feeling out of gas? This is only related to how you've linked yourself to something in creation and built yourself on it instead of trusting Jesus. Knowing the peace that he provides. And maybe you're thinking, I've trusted Jesus, but I still don't feel like I have the degree of this lasting peace that you're talking about. And I have found in my 20 plus year pastoral career that that's because many of us can be guilty of trying to kind of add Jesus but still remain in control. We still want to do some things our way. We call him Lord, but uh, there's still things that I'm still in charge of. And I would say the demand and the cling of control that you still have over a certain area of your life to do it your way is where your stress is related. It's the degree of the amount of worry and fear you have. The parts that Jesus is truly in control of in your life are the parts where you experience amazing peace. Because your faith allows you to see him on the throne and trust him. Trust him when it doesn't add up. Paul's words in Philippians about peace beyond understanding, it doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. But I trust in the one who's on the throne over it all, so therefore I'm at peace. There will be no peace for you as long as your hand is on the steering wheel. No, you have to trust it to him. We have to trust his victory on the cross is sufficient. Trust that he's able, he's more than able to accomplish his perfect will in your life. The reason why you're so upset, why you're so undone, why you can't sleep or eat, or why you're constantly grumpy. You've gotten your hands on it, and it's not going the way you want it to go. That You've stepped out of faith in that part. You've stepped out of resting in him. You've demanded it goes your way, not his. The key is, I'm all in for Jesus. I'm trusting it to him. No longer one hand on the wheel myself. No longer giving the enemy an open door to get me all turned upside down. And I love how many in our church have seen get this to new degrees and see, therefore, then the change it's bringing about in your life to see your faith go to work in some hard stuff. Maybe you grew up around the church or maybe you've tried religion a little bit but it just doesn't seem to fit for you like it does for others. I would just say it's likely because you still had your hand on the control. Jesus wasn't Lord of your life. And it's so sweet to get to times like today and scripture and and study where we get to really identify, man, I really have pulled back away from trusting this to the Lord to really get my hands on it and really kind of demand it goes the way I want it to. Trying to force it maybe overbuilding my hopes on this and then confessing that and repenting of it and regrounding yourself in the Lord.
And that's a sweet thing that he'll do in you. I've watched so many of you work through that. And sadly, I've also seen the other end of the spectrum. People who profess faith, seem to be committed to the Lord, come to that crossroad where they've got a hand on the, on the wheel demanding something goes their way. And when held accountable or when that's pointed out, that that's opposite of what God's made clear in his words should be, then they say, forget it, I'm walking. I'm so committed to this going my way. I'm so Lord of my life. I'm done with you. And leave the church. Leave the faith. Or, or go find churches that will tell them whatever they want to hear and think that they're still good. But I would say praise God for those moments where he's bringing the wrecking ball, when he's upsetting the apple cart. Because it's his love for you. It's his mercy on your life to wake you up to the things where you're not really living by faith. You really are serving the idols of your heart. It's, it's his gracious intervention to mess with that for the sake of bringing you back to the true treasure, which is him. Amen? So with all this under our feet, look with me at what John says again to the beloved, his beloved friend Gaius. Peace be to you. I need, I need you to see this church not as a, like a well-wish. Oh, I hope you have peace. Like that's found in Gaius' circumstances. That's not, right? That's the opposite of everything we just looked at. It's really more of a statement of because you're in Christ, peace be your reality. Be reminded of that. Not I hope you have peace, but a more statement of fact. You have peace in Christ. Peace be yours. Peace is yours. That you would live it, know it, thrive in it. Jesus speaks this way to his faithful disciples at a really interesting and critical moment in the journey. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen again. Those who are his faithful followers are now being basically hunted. So that reality is real. They're behind locked doors. And here comes Jesus. L listen to his emphasis throughout this entire part of the narrative. John's Gospel, chapter 20, 19 through 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, 
Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Three times, Jesus says, peace be with you. Even though Jesus is risen from the grave, the disciples' circumstances are very sketchy. They have much reason for horizontal fear. It says, peace be with you. But, But not in a way like, hey guys, I hope that you find peace. But more so in a way, I want you to see it as a proclamation. Peace be with you. I'm here. I'm risen. I'm resurrected. I'm victorious. I'm your representative. Peace be yours. You don't live in fear. Live your faith. Know this peace. Thrive in it. Don't go back to the old playbook. Jesus wanted to understand that in him alone they possessed true peace. Despite how hard things were or might get, peace was theirs in Christ. Now, we can all struggle with this at times. Even Thomas, who's one of the 12, needed some help. And so Jesus shows up to comfort Thomas, to meet him where he's at. You know what? Praise God for his faithfulness, right? When we struggle, he's still so good to meet us where we're at. Where we're at. Amen? Bring us back to him to reorient us to send a brother or sister to help us. When when Jesus says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe, he's reorienting his faith focus. He's saying, stop acting like an unbeliever because you're a believer. Live in faith. Be who you are. A believer in me, Jesus, Lord of all. How does Jesus know that? Because Jesus knows who are his. He knows it all. But he's trying to help Thomas reorient that faith, that thing that's gotten sideways, that thing that's gotten too much focused on the circumstances, on the horizontal, that has demanded to see, that has basically said, my faith's not enough. And... Can we be careful because some of us can be quick to lay judgment on a brother or sister when they struggle in this way? And kind of, we could look at Thomas and go, I can't believe he didn't trust his brothers and sisters that Jesus rose. Like, you guys weak. You guys, we're, we're in that place, right? We struggle there too. We all do that at times. Each of us can be prone to wander, prone to forget, to get our eyes off of Christ, to get too focused onto the storm. We all need this helpful reorientation, gospel reorientation, reminders of who we are in Christ. Maybe maybe you're one who needs that today. So I say to each of you, my friends, 
this morning because I love you and because I can't do better than Jesus did himself. Do not disbelieve. Believe. May Jesus' peace be your reality. That you would have peace, not because of your circumstances, but because of who you are in Christ. Because he's your Lord and Savior. Thomas confirmed what Jesus said. My Lord, my God. He, he sees that Jesus is alive, resurrected. He proclaims that he is Lord. And I pray that you too see Jesus not as just something to add to your life, but that he is your Lord, he is your God, worthy of all of your life. And, and yet see the refinement that Jesus is doing in that final verse. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's reminding him that faith, true faith, doesn't need sight. It's not faith. If you see it, I don't need faith that the candle is right here. I can touch it. Faith is for what is not seen. That we trust in him fully by faith. This, remember what I read earlier, Peter's words, 1 Peter 8, 1, 8, and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Highlighting that this truth about Christians who believe in Jesus, not because of what they see, Right? Hebrews definition of faith is helpful. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is born out of one's assurance of the presence of God and the promises of God. Faith is being sure of God's promises that they're worth putting your hope in and being sure that the invisible God did take on flesh and accomplish what we needed. You you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. One who you don't see. Who we will see face to face. Do you love Jesus deeply even though you've not seen him? Do you trust him? Your faith is in him. the disciples would go on after this event to be locked up, strung up, beat up for their faith, their belief in Christ. In its early form, they're shaking at some possible persecution trying to get through their door. All of them but one essentially would be killed for their faith. They would stand fast to the end. There was nothing in this world that was worth more to them. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I pray this is your reality. True and full faith in the Lord. Belief in him through whatever you're facing. Trusting him. And the result of knowing him, trusting him, 
is a peace that's beyond your understanding. So that's why in Philippians 4, Paul is saying, don't worry about anything. It's worthless. It's a worthless practice. Instead, pray about everything. Bring it to him in prayer. Because when you do that, you're reminded of who's on the throne. You're reminded that's best in his hands. And the result, what you get from that, is a peace about that circumstance that's beyond your fleshly understanding. There's the blessing, the benefit for us. What a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your ordaining John to write these three letters. His gospel is so sweet and such a gift, and yet these letters additionally are wonderful and so helpful. And this last large part of a year, 51 sermons, we've enjoyed this journey. And you've taught us so much about faith and certainty and truth and love and these mega themes we see in these letters. And you've grown us, you're maturing us, and more than anything, reorienting us to trust in you, to savor you above all, worship you. that we would really know the friendship we have with Christ and then therefore with each other and we would know the peace we have in Christ. That, that our full faith in him would give way to the reality of true and lasting peace. So therefore, when we hear the words, peace be to you, that, that it would it'd be an affirmation. This is real. This is mine in Christ. Brother, sister, live in peace. Peace be to you. Peace be your reality in Christ. We love you, Lord. The work you intend in your sovereign decree to do in each one here today, do it. Not because of anything of us, the, the building, the lighting, the decorations, the, the, the music, the preaching, but, but only because of you, because of how the Holy Spirit is at work to illuminate through your word. So I ask, Lord, for those who are desperate for salvation, they, they stand outside looking in, that you would open their blind eyes, unstop their deaf ears to hear the gospel and to savor it, not in a way that they can explain like how that happened, but only because you did that in them to give them faith. And for those of us who do have faith, to live it out, let it go to work, and know the peace we have in Christ alone. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.